Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As we've discussed many times on the podcast, the access to justice gap is a particularly complex challenge to address due to its links to systemic issues such as poverty and limited availability to legal resources and technology. Today's guest, however, is helping people overcome these broader obstacles to legal services. Amanda Brown is the founder and executive director of Lanyap Law Lab. The organization's mission is to facilitate access to justice at scale for Louisiana's underprivileged populations through the use of technology, human-centered design, and operations principles. Upon graduating law school, Amanda was a disaster recovery attorney, using technology to assist victims of disasters with accessing public benefits and title clearing. She then worked as a Microsoft NextGen Fellow for the American Bar Association Center for Innovation, helping support the design and development of the Legal Services Corporation's Legal Navigator Program, which connects those in need with legal resources available to them. She went on to serve as a legal technology consultant for the Louisiana Bar Foundation on its statewide triage portal. Drawing on these experiences in legal tech and the A to J space, Amanda founded Lanyap Law Lab in 2019. She's also co-chair of Louisiana's Access to Justice Commission's Technology Subcommittee, and she's a member of the Legal Services Corporation's Emerging Leaders Council. Today, Amanda tells us about the lab and how the team is incorporating human-centered design in its work the unique challenges that the lab's clients face in Louisiana, and how she entered the A to J path. It was a wide-ranging conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Amanda Brown, who is the founder and executive director of Lanyap Law Lab down here in New Orleans. Amanda, great to see you. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Let's start by talking about Lanyap. You're the founder and executive director of it. It's been around almost four years now, if I've done the math right. Yeah, I can't I can't honestly believe that it's been four years, given the last three have been enshrined by the complications of COVID. But yeah, we started up in 2019, really just an ability for me to kind of extend what I was already doing in consulting on access to justice um, technology and access to justice work here in Louisiana. We are primarily funded by the Louisiana Bar Foundation, and they really support us in our mission of making justice accessible for all. So I like to say our tagline is access to justice at scale. And that really means a lot of things, as probably people listening to this already know. But for us, it really is focused on two sides of the same coin. First, how legal aid and legal service organizations provide their services to the public and how people access them, but also to the public themselves and how they come to understand what their legal issues are, what they mean for them, what the implications are how they can be empowered to take the next steps to addressing and resolving those problems, and then ultimately connecting them with those service providers. So we're kind of looking at the system as a system at scale and wondering how all these individual pieces fit together and using technology to get there. So talk to us a little bit about the problem you're trying to solve. We've had a number of guests on talking about the A to J problem, so it's not The general sense is not new to our listeners, 
But are there particularly unique challenges you face in Louisiana? I think we definitely have unique challenges in that we have really extreme poverty in our state. Um, We're also pretty large and a lot of those areas are very rural places that people really don't have access to civil legal services in general. But there's also this issue that we're encountering of private attorneys are kind of drying up in these uh, rural areas. So that's some of the problems that we have been looking at and really leaning into technology to kind of bridge some of those gaps. I don't think that's surprising maybe to other uh, folks working in access to justice, but it became very apparent that we had this problem we had to deal with. So using technology to make resources available to those people in rural populations, talking specifically to issues that more marginalized communities in our state have really drives our strategy and what our goals are for producing resources and connecting people. But, you know, at the end of the day, access to justice is a really big, hairy problem that it's easy to focus in on one piece of it. But when you step back and look globally, it's a complete failure of our system, really, to enable people access to really their rights and helping them understand what their responsibilities are in this society that we've created using laws. So it's really, from my perspective, we're just trying to chip away at what is really a systemic failure of government, of, uh, of society the, as the a legal general. system. And so, it, exactly. It's a societal issue. So sometimes that's really scary, you know, when I think about it and think, oh, this problem seems unsolvable, but I'm hoping that the strategy of kind of like finding the issues and chipping away at them and building infrastructure and building systems to address that will be at least contribute to improving that problem. Yeah, the challenge is so big, you're never going to solve it. But if you can improve it, you're leaving everybody better off than you were before. Let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure piece. I'm curious, you, you talk about the extreme poverty in Louisiana and the rural nature. I suspect one of the challenges you have in bringing technology solutions is the access to technology by the users. Laptops, PCs are the gateway into these technology solutions. Is that a challenge you face in Louisiana? And and how do you, whether it's Lanyap or your allied organizations, what's the solution to that? Yes. So just simply put, yes, that has been a problem that we observed, Um, not just access to the technology itself as a gateway, as you put it, but access to internet. Uh, We have really poorly distributed internet networks here in the state. Thankfully, there has been, you know, federal legislation allocating funding towards investment in high speed internet in rural areas. And Louisiana is definitely taking advantage of that. And there's great people working in the state government that are working to bring those types of services to the communities. But technology, software or hardware itself is also somewhat of an issue, although this really ties into the final answer of like kind of how we are trying to address this, which is through our, we have a legal access point project that we're going into community spaces like libraries, community action agencies, 
places where people are already going for help with a problem that they're having, whether that's legal or not, and putting in physical resources for them. That looks like something as simple as brochures, uh, educating people on common issues that are prevalent in their community and their populations, but also software that we have built and installed in these public spaces that enables people to find information about a ton of different problems, access self-help forms um, that we're working on expanding in the state, meeting with the legal services attorney, getting referrals to those programs. And then in some places where court is also available online through a virtual hearing system, enabling them to do that in these spaces as well. So that's kind of the proposed and what we're working on now as far as trying to put this infrastructure in place to enable people to have access. But we did find in our research in these rural communities that people do generally have access to a smartphone. Not everybody, of course, but that is a viable way to connect with people. Um, it really just comes down to the reliability of the internet that they're using to access that. So we hope that, again, we're thinking broadly about how all these pieces intersect and how they connect. And it's a lot to balance, but making resources that are mobile accessible, but that can also be accessible in these physical access points is important because people do have access to it. You talk about uh, Lanyap being based on human-centered design as one of the fundamental precepts. How do you sort of, how do you do that? It's a big state. You have people dispersed. It's not like you have all of your constituents gathered together in a focus group. That must be a challenge to get the user input and the effectiveness of the solution for the users. How do you, how do you do that? It involves traveling to very remote parts of the state and doing (laughs) what we can to get people at the table. Specifically for that access point project, that was a year and a half long endeavor of working with community leaders and convening them regularly to have them help us understand what the challenges are in their communities. And then with their support, recruiting people from the actual community to sit down with us and tell us their story, tell us how they perceive their problems, tell us what they would like to see, how they would like to have help resolving their problems so that we could collate all that information and design something that is really speaking to that community's needs and desires, but also the realities of the situation that we, you know, have three lawyers in a parish that, you know, has the most vulnerable, most uh, disadvantaged people in our entire state there. So really just trying to bridge the gap between what's ideal that I think does oftentimes come out of human-centered design and design thinking exercises with the reality of the situation that there's no way we're going to be able to give every person a lawyer in person. So lots of travel, lots of frank conversations, but at the end of the day, keeping those perspectives at the center of what we're building so that we're meeting kind of you know, meeting people's needs and hopes as best as we can. Well, we've been talking predominantly about the underserved population, but there, there are other stakeholders in this, for example, the judiciary system, because a, a lot of the issues you talked about, virtual courts, virtual hearings. How receptive has the judiciary been down here to the use of technology and changing the way they, Richard Susskin talks about a court being a service, not a place. How receptive are they to this and what type of change process have you had to go through to 
to get the judiciary, the court system to adapt to a different way of doing business? I really think they're getting there. That's how I would position it. We have some leadership here within the judicial system. Scott Schlegel, um, he's a judge out of the 24th Judicial District here in Louisiana. And all this kind of, there's like a really significant inflection point, COVID mainly, where people realize that we have a problem here. We can't, we're going into these spaces or we're unable to go into these spaces because they're suddenly dangerous to do so. So we have to adapt in order to justify what we're saying. Oh, we're serving the public. So at the same time, we're trying to build all this infrastructure out on the public facing side. The courts are also recognizing the need to adapt and change just given the circumstances. That is, of course, tied directly to how they're operating and focused internally on the court system side and what their internal procedures are, but also in how people are accessing that. So I think that we're, you know, meeting in the middle here and there is, you know, leadership, people that understand that this is kind of the way that the legal system is going, the way that it needs to go in order to adapt to current circumstances. So working on these public facing projects, but also being connected to the court has really helped us as well, because we can start to offer more things like court forms that have really been honestly a contentious conversation here in Louisiana for 20 years. But all of a sudden, You know, we are seeing the need, they're seeing the need too, and are more receptive to the idea of using technology to help people get there. Because at the end of the day, I think there's a realization that better court forms or court form automations actually helps them as well, because they're not getting poorly filled out forms or forms drafted by notaries that are 20, 30 years old, or people are pulling forms offline off of and paying for forms from Florida or something. So by coming together, I think there's really good momentum going to make sure that these things are accessible to the public. Uh, That's awesome. What projects do you have in the pipeline at Lanyap that got you excited? We're starting to scale out the Legal Access Points project. So, which is awesome, by the way, and it's one of those, it's one of those ideas that I, I see every once in a while. That when you hear it, you go, "Well, of course." <laughs> it always <laughs> coming up with the idea is brilliant. Well, you know, it takes a lot of energy to come up with these things. So, I'm just grateful that we could you know, be involved in that and help bring that to life. It's not just us. We have a network of partners. I should say we don't even provide direct legal services. So we really rely on and lean on the other programs in our state to buy into these ideas to make them effective. So we have three of those currently live and we're in talks for essentially what amounts to three more over the next few months. So it's just building partnership, I think, is really, maybe it's not undersold, but in the past has been undersold, especially when it comes to technology adoption. You always hear change management as like a key component to successful technology implementation. And that's certainly true in this case. So we're spending time laying the foundation with community partners, pulling people together, helping them understand what the problems 
their community members are having or what they might have. And then telling them, hey, we actually have resources for you for these problems. And that really gets people to buy in and be excited about the availability of this. So, you know, we'll continue to work on that. We also are flagship kind of cornerstone project, Louisiana Civil Legal Navigator is really focused on building all those resources for the people. It's one thing to have the physical infrastructure for it, but that's useless without the content, the tools, the information that really help people get from A to Z. So we're always continuing to work on that. I have a great content team that is building out resources for the community, focusing also on court forms. As I mentioned earlier, you know, seizing that momentum that we have with the courts and and hoping that we can get this to a larger scale adoption. The court forms piece is really important because we don't have a unified court system here in Louisiana, which makes things really challenging as far as like giving instruction about, <laughs> oh, how can you how can you get a divorce? The most lawyer answer ever. It depends. It depends on where you live. And I personally don't think that that is not very efficient. Is it? <laughs> it's not an efficient way to have access to justice. So the court forms, we you know continue to automate existing forms and work to develop new ones. I mean, I could go on forever, but <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot in the pipeline. You talked about the civil legal navigator, and it's, I've seen it described as the statewide triage portal. What does that mean? Yes. So it's really all about having, I look at it as a layer on top of all these other great resources that we have in our state. So from the perspective of someone that has a legal problem, finding, I should step back to say, there are resources available to them. You know, I've talked about legal information. There are other programs like Louisiana Free Legal Answers. We have a modest means panel referral mechanism. We have tons of civil legal aid organizations, domestic violence programs. We have this network of things, but finding it is really hard for somebody. So this, I look at it as a layer on top of all of those things so that there's one place people can go to get a referral, to find all those court forms, to learn about what type of legal issues they have and connecting the dots for them so that they don't have to do that themselves. How do you see the technology evolving from a user standpoint? There's obviously, we talked off air about chat GPT and I promised we didn't have to talk about it uh, and we don't. But as technology continues to evolve, do you see it becoming more effective in helping users navigate the court systems or the legal system? Do I see it as effective in helping them navigate the court system? No, not necessarily. At least in my brain, I haven't visualized a successful use case of that just yet. But I do think that there's a lot of promise for the just general legal issue awareness and even simple drafting of documents and things like that, that we're currently doing by document automation. I will say in the future, I believe that that is possible. Right now, I wouldn't dare suggest that that is a viable path uh, for somebody. Although you could argue that it might be better than nothing. But 
I've used, for example, I used ChatGPT to test it against a self-help product that I have built here in Louisiana on habitability laws, like helping people get redressed for habitability issues they're having with their landlord. And the output was, it was garbage, to be honest. Like it sounded really nice, but it just doesn't, it's not able to take into consideration all of the, you know, external factors and really drill down on what somebody's situation actually is. So Maybe in the future I could see that, but I will say internally, it's been helpful for content development because it's like a, it's solving a blank page problem, you know, for us. It's great. Like if we, you know, have standards about the types of things that we're trying to produce on the content side uh, to educate people, we can instruct it to put that out. And then of course we have the ability to do a review of that. So I think it's very helpful internally. And maybe in the future, there's, you know, the possibility of it being more effective as a public facing mechanism. But I'm just I'm not sure yet. Yeah, fair enough. So you, you clearly have a passion both for solving the AJ problem or making headway in solving it and technology. Where does that passion come from? You were an economics major at LSU and decided to go to law school. Did you go to law school thinking you were going to go down this path or tell us about your origin story? Definitely not. Number one, I didn't even know that this was a path when I was in law school. I didn't know it was a path until I, it was after law school, to be frank. I went to law school. You know, I had this experience when I was in high school with my grandfather. And, you know, I was just being like a righteous teenager at this point. Like, oh, somebody wronged us. Like, what can we do about this? And my grandfather said to me, you know, that's what lawyers do. A lawyer can help. So I'll never forget that. And it really set me on the path of becoming a lawyer. And I really thought I'll just go to law school. I'll be, you know, do transactions or real estate or something like that. And then I took a clinic course in my last semester in law school that was on technology in the law. And I learned, you know, some basic coding and things like that. But I really learned how similar to some extent, the law and computation really are. So that was interesting to me. And Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I guess so we're like in computation. It's, it's very logic driven, you know, so the law, especially here in our state where we have, you know, a civil code and everything is kind of like to a T about how you're supposed to handle things even though that's absolutely not true. Um, <laughs> okay, sure. Even though that's not true. Uh, but in theory, it's there. So, you know, you, using that same kind of mindset to help solve problems and applying the law to facts, you can do that with a computer. So that was really interesting to me as a way to think broader about the application of the law to people. I guess eventually it became more apparent to me that that is probably one of the best ways for us to handle these high volume, really common issues that people have that don't have the level of complexity that, you know, some, I don't even understand some of the things that litigation lawyers talk about, but we're talking about everyday problems that people are having at a high volume at scale that that's probably one of the best ways to do it because we know that people aren't getting any help. They're staying married for 20 years and creating all kinds of problems, you know, with assets and things like that. 
They're not getting their estate planning done, which is causing problems down the line. They're not doing these things that, again, we as society has determined this is the way that we should function. And it's disproportionately impacting uh, marginalized people that can't afford to have that, have those services. So I guess that's, you know, a long tangent from the original question, but that's really where that's my core belief at this point in where I am in my career is that we can and we should be doing it. I think there is probably room to argue that there's some ethical obligation for the profession to make these types of services available to people because, you know, it, it is disproportionately impacting poor and marginalized communities. So. We're just doing our best to try and see all the pieces that are there and figure out how they intersect with each other and build pipelines and systems for all those things to connect. Like I said, it's a big problem, but at least it's interesting and it keeps, you know, keeps me going. Keeps you busy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you, you take your third year of law school, you take a clinic on A to J legal tech work. What do you do with that after law school? How did that change your thinking about your career? Uh, initially and immediately, I wouldn't say that it really did. I went into my first year in practice um, working for Southeast Louisiana Legal Services as a disaster law fellow, doing disaster work, mostly involving helping people access public benefits after disaster, doing title clearing, things like that. But there, I actually got the chance to work and contribute to a project called Floodproof, which is an application that was being developed by Stanford Legal Design Lab and the ABA Center for Innovation to help with some of those title clearing problems, use technology to do that initial fact-finding information gathering for these types of cases so that you could more efficiently process them. So at that point, I learned, honestly, that the Center for Innovation existed, which it was new at the time, and heard that they were opening a fellowship program at the center. So I applied. I ended up getting a placement um, where I went to work at Microsoft in Redmond for a year to help support the design and development of the Legal Service Corporation's Legal Navigator program, which is, you know, kind of similar to what we're trying to do and just bridge the gap between and connecting all these people, all of these programs that are available to people. So I did that for a year, came back to Louisiana and started consulting here with the Louisiana Bar Foundation on some technology projects. And then that's where we really kind of saw, all right, there's a need for this. There's a space for it. You know, let's make this a reality, make this a core part of the strategy for addressing the justice gap in Louisiana. And really, the rest is history. Here we are today. So I'm curious about how you view technology in the sense of, have you had to sort of learn details of how to be a coder or how to be a a developer? Or is it more understanding the use of technology and the capabilities and leaving that to somebody else? What advice would you give people who want to follow a similar path? How much do they need to understand the mechanics of these technology implementations? I would definitely say it's more the latter and understanding what's available and what's possible. That's really where the ability for someone like me to come in and look at things in total and say, all right, this is a potential application point for that. Let's do this. 
I will say, though, I have also just by virtue, you know, of us being a nonprofit and me endlessly curious, I have, you know, worked on developing some level of coding and development skills. Just that's probably more a personal, <laughs> a personal <laughs> thing than anything. I'm, uh, I like to tinker. That's my, <laughs> that's, that's my fair. thing. So I love to tinker. So you know, getting my hands dirty. It's very humbling, by the way. Uh, you think, oh, that's that's no big deal. But learning even basic coding things is very humbling for a lawyer without a technical background. Um, <laughs> I so imagine. I do lean, I lean a lot on no-code tools too, which I think is, if you want to say advice, I would definitely give people advice to like get into these no-code tools, like document automation tools that are available out there. There are no-code or low-code website development platforms. They want it to be easy for you to execute on something that's living in your brain. So it is a very effective way of building something that is tangible and seeing, you know, seeing an output of that, that's really satisfying and really helpful. So. Right. Last question. If our listeners want to contribute to the work Lanyap is doing, how do they, we'll put something in the show notes, but tell us how they can connect with y'all. Yeah, we can definitely give my email address uh, in the show notes. You can reach out to me. We also, our website, uh, lanyaplawlab.org. You can kind of see what we're working on. I really need to update the website. (laughs) Um, Call it a priorities exercise, but uh, there's a way to contact us and donate as well. Okay, great. Well, Mandy, you're doing some wonderful things. Good luck uh, in your mission and uh, keep up the good work. And thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.